Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. I'm reading tonight. Oh, I'm Katie, by the way. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the, hi, I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church. Uh, really enjoying worship with y'all tonight. That's, uh, it's quite lovely. Um, I'm reading tonight from Mark chapter 12, and we're continuing on in our series called The Cries of Our Hearts. We have tonight and one more week for that. And tonight's theme, as Steph alluded to, is we cry out for the capacity to love. Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked him, Which commandment is first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right teacher, you have truly said that God is one, and beside God there is no other, and to love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the reign of God. After that, No one dared to ask him any question. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Because you are the kind of people who pay attention, the kind of people whose minds hold on to what you've considered in seasons past, on Sundays past, you already know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say context matters. I'm going to say that Mark tells these stories about Jesus in a particular order on purpose so that we'll have more than just the bare facts of the singular story to work with, so that we'll remember Jesus walking, talking, observing, being observed, so that we will know where he is, when he is, the day that this scribe comes to him with an old question that people of faith have been asking each other for a long time time. You already know that he has traveled with his worried friends from rural Galilee to the city of Jerusalem, the seat of power for his religious tradition and the nearest outpost for the occupational governmental authorities. You already know that he has ridden a donkey into town in a theatrical satire of imperial military power. You already know that he has disrupted the exploitative temple economy by flipping their tables. That was all in chapter 11. 
You already know that the ones most threatened by his provocations are now plotting to kill him. So you already know that this conversation with the scribe in chapter 12, the scribe identified not by name, but as his status as a VRP, a very religious person, is the way Mark has told it, one of the last conversations Jesus will have with anyone before he is turned in, arrested, abused, tried, convicted, executed. You know it, and he knows it. Do you ever have a hard time discerning someone's intention in interactions with you? Like, for me, for much of my early adulthood, I knew for a fact that a lot of interactions I had with people were built on a foundation of sexism, meaning that I could be criticized or condescended to or completely ignored because I was a girl. <laughs> Sometimes back in the day, people would just say that outright, <laughs> which in some ways was a surprising relief. I say relief because the lingering effect of culturally and ecclesially embedded sexism is to make me question every unpleasant encounter for apparently the rest of my natural life as to whether a disagreement or a critique is valid and deserving of my attention or simply sexist and therefore permissible to ignore. I've heard the same from people of color, finding it hard to know when to trust that a white person is being genuinely kind or curious or offering trustworthy critique or just really too busy to pay adequate attention or whether they're operating out of the same old supremacist racist assumptions and can therefore be safely dismissed from one's worried mind. How do you know? I bring it up because given the context of this conversation between Jesus and the scribe, it would be so easy to just put this guy in the category of enemy. <laughs> Jesus has many of them by the time this dude in the story comes along, and they all look just like this man. They all belong to the same club. They're all known by their commitment to a system that's heavily invested in the status quo. They've been talking about Jesus behind his back for months, trying to figure out how to trip him up, bring him down, eliminate the threat he represents to the brittle peace they have forged with their occupiers. Consider, for example, just earlier in chapter 12, in the story that we read together last Sunday about coins and icons and the Imago Dei, which I have heard that the closed captioning we now offer on our live stream transcribes as Imago Dave, <laughs> proving that the online experience of worship offers delights that IRL worship never can. In that story, from last week, the VRPs come to trap Jesus, Mark says, and Jesus knows their hypocrisy and exposes it to the whole crowd. That story is followed in chapter 12 by another instance of VRPs testing Jesus with a trick question, this time about a woman married multiple times to spouses who precede her in death, leaving her a widow many times over, which complicates things in the afterlife, right? Right? 
assuming that all her spouses are waiting for her in heavenly McMansions, hoping to recreate their short-lived marital bliss in heaven as it was on earth. And Jesus gives an answer to that question that if I understood, I would explain it to you, but alas, I'm not sure I do. I feel okay about not nailing the exact details of how relationships work in the life to come as I have never been there. And as Jesus himself seemed quite irritated by this whole line of questioning, you know, the questions that are tangential at best, a distraction at worst, such that religious people through the ages spend an inordinate amount of time arguing about fine points of doctrine we cannot possibly know for sure. Corollaries of corollaries of theological propositions that are far from the heart of the gospel. Perhaps even far from the heart of God. So, context. Does that make it harder or easier to believe that this scribe could be for real? The guy was the next one in line after all the tricksy attempts by his brethren to catch Jesus in a gotcha situation, a memeable moment that would get him canceled by the crowds in time for a weekend crucifixion. And his question could have been another trick, right? I mean, VRPs had long debated this query about the first commandment, not meaning first in sequence, but first in the sense of primary, like the prime directive, like the commandment on which all the other commandments rested. There are rabbinic stories, perhaps less factual than true, if you catch my meaning, about great teachers of the Torah the religious law, being dared to state the essence of Torah while either the rabbi or the challenger or both stood on one foot. In other words, rather than listing the hundreds of religious requirements outlined in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the teacher is challenged to boil it down to its essence offer a summation of the whole that captures the intent of it all and do it fast before somebody loses their balance and falls over. So this scribe comes to Jesus and offers the traditional challenge. Sum up the religious law. Name the prime directive. Show me that you've thought about it beyond memorization of a long list of do's and don'ts, thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And I'm thinking maybe he lifts up one foot and puts out his arms for balance as he asks. See, it might be a trick. You'd be justified in thinking so if everybody in line ahead of this guy was playing a cynical game of theological gotcha. Is this one for real? You might be asking yourself silently. Or is he just doing me this way because I'm the Messiah? But Jesus, bless him. He takes all comers. And this time... He does not sigh or look heavenward or rebuke the questioner out loud. He takes this one as a straightforward inquiry. He has a ready answer. The scribe asks, which commandment is the first of all? The first is, 
Jesus answers with uncharacteristic, straightforward submission to the question as asked. The first is, listen up, Israel. There's only one God, God alone, and thou shalt love God with your whole self, with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, body, nothing left out, no part of yourself not loving God, which would have been a real good answer in anybody's book, especially the VRPs, as he's quoting a greatest hit from Deuteronomy 6. He's quoting Old Man Moses, a foundational text for Jews through the ages, the essential monotheistic commitment to dedicate oneself wholly to the one true God, leaving no part of oneself available to love or serve or even glance at any other little g God, not even a little bit, not even for a second. But in your mind's eye, just look a little closer, and you're going to see that one of Jesus' feet is still hovering above the ground because he's not done yet. The second is this, he says, and wait a minute, the scribe is thinking. The point of this exercise is to name just the one, but for Jesus, you can't have the first without the second. The second is this, he says, love everybody else too the way you love yourself also a good answer. A deep cut from Leviticus 19, right between verses in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20 that have been weaponized against people in this very room, reminding us that the gospel of God's reign of love is embedded in the sneakiest places like a tiny seed planted in the quiet darkness of a farmer's field, sprouting into a mighty shrub of shelter and inclusion. We know now how, alleluia, alleluia, and thanks be to God. Leave it to Jesus to make us thankful for Leviticus. He is a miracle worker for sure. Okay, now everybody's got both feet on the ground. And compliments are being exchanged. The VRP appreciates Jesus' thoughtful answer. Jesus appreciates the VRP's thoughtful question. It's a rare moment of harmony in the discordant days of his last week. And one wonders, how does he do it? How does he keep his cool, keep thinking clearly, interpreting generously, extending the olive branch of conversation when he knows what they're plotting? When the tension in the air is so thick you could take a bite out of it and chew it like gum. I mean, it may or may not be a fair comparison. I don't know what it's like to be Jesus in Jerusalem in 30-ish CE, but I know what it's like to be a liberal in Texas in the year of our Lord 2021. Where every other person in line with me at the grocery store won't wear a damn mask and probably thinks our school libraries are full of gay, pornographic, critical race theory. And surely I don't have to go through the whole list of assumptions I made about the driver of that gargantuan pickup truck coming up on my ass the other day, revving his engine, flashing his lights, letting it be known that I should go faster or get off the road entirely. 
No matter that our garbage pickup guys were doing dangerous work for me and my neighbors just ahead of me. No matter that my wealth and whiteness and privilege and destruction of the planet by all the garbage we make were top of mind for me as I slowed down to give the garbage guys some time and room. And then that gargantuan pickup truck driver with his tiny little opinion of me finally blew his cool and zoomed around me and the garbage truck, oncoming traffic on our two-lane road be damned. And while he blew past, I felt both my hands levitate off the steering wheel and throw him an enthusiastic double one-fingered salute, the full power of my maternal glare shooting daggers through the glass. And only after he was gone in a cloud of dust and exhaust and the garbage collectors were waving back at me, checking to see if I was okay, did I remember that I was wearing my priestly collar <laughs> and my Marsha P. Johnson pin. The visible signs of the invisible reality of my discipleship of the one who said the only commandments I really have to know are the ones about love. Love God and love everybody else as much, as well, as I love myself. I'm just saying, as many of you have said to me that a lot of us are carrying around a deep well of distrust and anger. Just beneath the surface, distrust of neighbor, anger at neighbor, rooted, I'm sure, in a COVID-intensified fear of neighbor, such that rage is right there, accessible all the time. And I don't know about you, but it's messing with my capacity to love the way Jesus said I should, knowing, even as I do, that he kept doing it under circumstances that could have, should have, provoked his very own human fear-to-rage acceleration. I'm not saying he was never mad. I'm just saying that he found a way somehow to still be insistent that love is the realest, most valuable thing in the world, the thing on which every other thing is built, the goodness on which all other goodness depends, even when his own efforts to embody love on God's behalf had gotten him nothing but heartache in return. I may have blown my chance here to be taken seriously as a person with anything wise to say about loving our neighbors these days. <laughs> but on the off chance that you still trust me a little bit, let me offer this observation. What if Jesus's answer to this scribe's question his engagement with this dude whose best friends were definitely Jesus' worst enemies. What if that was not just Jesus talking about love, but Jesus actually doing love, loving him, 
right then and there. What if, like a lot of things, Jesus says what he does and does what he says, the way he both talks about the reign of God and embodies the reign of God, talks about God getting everything God wants and brings to life God getting everything God wants wherever he goes. What if by engaging this guy in a serious way, by assuming his question was genuine, by simply regarding the man standing in front of him as a fellow human being, imago Dei, worthy of time and attention, even now, even in the last worst week of his life, even when he had plenty of evidence to recommend the assumption of assholery, what if just by taking him seriously for a second, giving him the benefit of the doubt for a second, for just about as long as he could stand on one foot, Jesus was loving this guy. It's not like they became best friends or agreed to meet up for drinks later, or introduced each other to their family and co-workers. They didn't hold hands and sing camp songs. They didn't put their numbers in each other's phones or share a spliff. I said spliff. <laughs> Jesus didn't even ask his name as far as we know. It's no bromance that Mark is narrating here. I'm just saying, what if the guy in the truck was on his way to a job interview after a long season of unemployment. Or on his way to court for a gender marker change. Or on his way to the airport to pick up his parents who'd been unable to travel to the US until COVID restrictions were lifted last week. We don't have to hang out, he and I. But I could, could I? Love him the way Jesus loved that scribe? Could I engage him as a neighbor, at least as a potential neighbor, rather than a potential enemy? Could I let Jesus' instructions, Jesus' example, so form my imagination that the person I am primed by experience and reason to not love becomes a person I might, could, love, against self-interest, against the evidence, because, because, I don't know, because Jesus did, because Jesus does, because Jesus will forever love him and me both. I don't know. I don't know, but I know something that would be a gift from myself to myself an act of self-love that I would be glad to receive. And that is the release of my own heart from all the hate that is built up in there. It's heavy, that hate. Don't you know it? Love God. Love everybody else. Love yourself. Jesus said, it's all tangled up together. You can't say one or do one without the others. It's like a lot of things around here. It's aspirational, church. We're just here trying that, trying that, all of it, all together, every day. I'm glad to be doing it with you. You are so loved.
Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.